Good morning, Crossway. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. This morning we'll be continuing our study through this letter from Paul to these elect exiles. These sojourners enduring persecution and suffering. If you're a note taker, there are some some handouts in the back. I don't know if you have one. But if you don't and you're into titles, my deep and profound title for this message is Keep Looking Up. Keep Looking Up. So 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 through 12 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, <clears throat> inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the very word of the living God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and study your word. I pray that you would speak to us through your word and you would convict or encourage where need be. Lord, use me this morning to proclaim your word and proclaim your excellencies to your people. Lord, we love you and we thank you again for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It hasn't really been an easy year for us, has it, Crossway? We've seen tragedy. We've seen death. We've seen hardship and hurt. We've seen sin and sickness. We've seen church discipline. Sometimes we can feel like, man, I can't wait to get out of this season. It's so hard. But we've also seen so many great things. We've seen new marriages, new life. Some of you are racing to see how many kids you can have as fast as you can. We've seen new spiritual life, baptisms. We've seen friends and new people joining our church. It's funny how short-sighted we can be about our particular moment in time. It's funny how we ourselves assess a year and deem it a good year or a bad year. And sometimes zooming out and putting things into a bigger context can help us. A different perspective, an eternal perspective. If you had been one of the first recipients of this letter, I think you would have been in a place where you would assess your season as a bad one. A man, I can't wait for this to end season. 
These people were living in the Roman Empire with a madman at the throne. His name was Nero. By all accounts, he was not emperor material. He lacked any type of military training. He was driven by sensuality and moral perversion. In his first decade in power, this young emperor killed many senators. He killed many relatives, anyone that seemed to be a threat to him and his throne. He had a horrible start, a despicable start, and he increasingly got worse. He had his mother banished and clubbed to death. He had his wife, Octavia, murdered. He was known for so many horrible things and horrible policies, but probably his most notable was the Great Fire of A.D. 64. It was summer, and systematically, Nero sent out groups of soldiers to set his own city on fire. Unstoppable flames filled and destroyed half of the world's greatest city. Along with its culture and art, millions were made homeless. Thousands upon thousands perished in the flames that burned continuously for six days. While the city burned, this madman, he played his lyre this small harp. He played music above the flames in some sort of celebration. And the people needed answers. And rumor was spreading that it was Nero who started this fire. They were suspicious since almost instantly he started building this golden palace on the burned ground. But Nero had a scapegoat ready. It was a small group in Rome that was becoming more and more notable. They were called the way, followers of the way. It was in Antioch that they were first called Christians, a word that meant little Christs, a mocking term, and their desire to poke at their leader, their crucified Savior. And it was easy to blame them because they were some kind of Jewish sect in Roman thinking. And Jews were hated and persecuted, and they were monotheists in a culture with many different gods and goddesses. They were known for their strange rituals like the Lord's Supper and baptism. The Christian writer Tertullian, about a century later, was the first to call Nero the first persecutor of Christians. He wrote, examine your records. There you will find that Nero was the first that persecuted this doctrine. And it was a persecution that would only be the beginning. This persecution would outlive Nero It would hound the church for three centuries. Christians would be on the run until Nicaea, 397. This is the early Christian period where Paul would lose his head and Peter would be crucified upside down. But it was Nero's unashamed and brutal cruelty. He tarred and speared and lit Christians on fire to light up his garden. He would have them sewn into animal skins and thrown to wild animals to be eaten for people's entertainment. It was to this context that Peter writes this beautiful letter that you all hold in your laps. He writes this to these scattered believers, these aliens, these pilgrims who do not belong in this world. He writes so that they would stand firm in the grace of God while they face unimaginable suffering and persecution. He calls them the elect of God in verse 1, the chosen of God. He writes to them and describes the greatness of their salvation. He knows 
their situation. And he knows that they're living out the words of Jesus where he said, they hated me and they will hate you. And you will be persecuted for my name's sake. As they face this intense rejection by man, he tells them that they have been gloriously chosen by the eternal sovereign God. And he goes immediately into a praise for God for his great mercy because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Born again to an inheritance. These people on a run, on the run, who probably had nothing. Born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them. And if you trust Christ today, this is you. Before you took your first breath, you were chosen and loved by God. And though you may be rejected by this world, you are chosen and foreknown by God. And so Peter continues to change their perspective. He zooms them out from their circumstances and points them to Jesus. And he points them to their salvation. He has them step back and look at this from an eternal perspective. This book is incredible. It's amazing how looking to our Savior and savoring Him and looking at the surety of our salvation can adjust our perspective. This section that we have here this morning is so sweet. In a rotation of preachers, I'm thankful that I have the privilege of preaching this section to you all this morning. And so this morning, I have two points. You see them on your paper if you don't. My two points are, one, looking to Christ, our unseen Savior, And two, looking to our unrevealed salvation. Looking to Christ, our unseen Savior, and looking to our unrevealed salvation. Number one, looking to our unseen Savior. There is such a tenderness in these words. I love how clear and simple they are. They're quickly becoming some of my favorite words in the entire Bible. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, that's Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Crossway, there is great treasure for us here. Though we aren't experiencing the type of persecution that these Christians were facing, we do suffer. And I think we can see a growing hostility towards our faith in an increasingly secular culture towards those who find Jesus to be exactly what he described himself to be, the way, the truth, and the life. There's hostility. A Puritan by the name of Thomas Vincent speaks quite lengthy about this text. He built an entire book on 1 Peter 1.8. And we see that Peter, he addresses love First, and so Thomas Vincent, he says, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without spiritual life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith, and a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are holy without the nature of Christians. We may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power of godliness. 
Give me your heart is the language of God to all people. Proverbs 23, 26. And give me your love is the language of Christ to all his disciples. How important it is for us to love Christ. This Savior that we, like these believers, we have not seen with our physical eyes, but we long for. Peter is writing to Christians who, like us, have not seen Jesus. And now Peter, he didn't just see Jesus. He walked with him and talked with him for those three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He saw and heard the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He saw Jesus do all the miracles. He saw Jesus die and raise from the dead. He saw him and denied him three times. He had a firsthand experience with Jesus. So Peter here says to these Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though we have not seen Jesus with our physical eyes, we see him clearly. More clear than the Pharisees or Judas or the thousands who actually saw Jesus during his earthly ministry. We see him with faith and love. Notice how Peter does not say, though you do not see him, you ought to love him. He doesn't say this is what you need to do. This is an indicative. This is a fact. Though you do not see him, you love him. They're not being commanded here. They're being commended. And so are you if you love the Lord Jesus Christ. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love him is the heart of true biblical Christianity. Peter starts with love, the foundation of it all. After Peter denied Jesus, what did Jesus ask Peter three times? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Love for Christ is priority. You may have great discipline. You may have great sacrifice in your life, but do you have love? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The true Christian has a love for Christ that is superior than merely seeing him. Think about it. Thousands saw Jesus. Thousands bumped into him in crowds. Thousands tasted of that heavenly bread that he multiplied, but they did not love him. Multitudes saw him and hated him. Multitudes saw him and yelled, crucify him. Though you do not see him, you love him. Verse 8 continues, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Not only do you love him, you believe in him. Despite the circumstances, not only do true believers love him, but they trust him as well. John 20, 24 talks about the story of Thomas. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place 
my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Without putting our hands into Jesus' side, we say, My Lord and my God. By faith, we trust what he did on that cross. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him. Faith accepts the revealed, written record of Jesus Christ as fact. The soul that loves Christ cannot help but believe Christ. And the soul that believes Christ can't help but love Christ. Love and faith are so intertwined. You can't have one without the other. These believers have not seen Christ with their eyes, but they see him another way. Moving forward, it says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Those who live in personal communion with Christ experience a joy so divine that they can't communicate it. Humanly speaking, such joy is beyond the reach of speech and expression. Looking to Jesus, our unseen Savior, produces joy that surpasses all understanding. It produces a joy that can look through the tragedies. It doesn't say that they're not real or not there. They are there. But it produces a joy that looks through the tragedies and through the brokenness of this fallen world. Once you have made peace with God, that is in salvation, having ceased to be God's enemy and now you're one of his children, you can enjoy the peace of God. The inward tranquility of soul granted only by God. We have confident trust in God's flawless wisdom and infinite power that provides calm amid the storms of life. This joy and peace God gives transcends human intellectual powers. It transcends human analysis, human insights, human understanding. The real challenge of the Christian life is not to eliminate every unpleasant circumstance. That will never happen on this side of heaven. It is to trust the good purpose of our infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful, and good God in every difficulty. This word for joy is from the word doxazo in the Greek, meaning to render highest praise, and from which doxology derives this praise. And this joy is filled with glory. It produces praise to God. In their fellowship with the Lord, believers have both a supernatural love and a transcendent joy. Peter points us to Jesus, our unseen Savior, and to savor Him, to look on Him in the midst of our trials and suffering. Number two, 
looking to our unrevealed salvation. Verse 9 says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In a world of persecution and suffering, Peter, all throughout this section, has us look at our salvation, our great salvation. He wants us to set our eyes there instead of here. He wants us to meditate on the future glory of our salvation instead of this temporary hardship. Because all the hardship and all the suffering we endure here on earth is nothing compared to the glory of eternity. Samuel Rutherford, he said, our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Now, by using this word obtaining here, here it says obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is letting these believers know that their salvation is sure. You will obtain this. You are obtaining this. As sure as we are that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, even though we didn't see it, as sure as we are of that, we can be sure of our salvation. And that is comfort for us. As bad as it is now, the glorious future in heaven is sure. Guaranteed. It doesn't depend on how hard you work now. It's not like your job where you need to go to work and you need to go put those hours in and you need to please your boss. And then at the end of two weeks, you get your paycheck. No. Your salvation, your sanctification, and your glorification are guaranteed. Verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace, the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Peter then draws our attention to the salvation referred to in verse 9 from the viewpoint of the prophets. They were God's Old Testament spokes, spokesmen who spoke of the grace that would come. They then pursued the meaning of their own prophetic writings to know all that they could about God's promised salvation. Of all the truth the prophets received through divine revelation, the truth of salvation was their greatest passion. From Moses to Malachi, all the Old Testament prophets were fascinated by the promises of salvation. But they did not merely wish to receive that salvation. They actually obtained it. They received the gift of God's salvation without seeing its full accomplishment, without seeing Jesus Christ. They didn't have the gospel accounts like us. Though the prophets wrote of the Messiah, they never fully comprehended all that was involved in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The focus of the prophets' intense study was trying to comprehend the person and work of Christ. It was centered on this grace that, that would come to sinners through him. Salvation concerns primarily the divine act of saving sinners, where grace encompasses the entire motive behind God's saving work. The prophets sought to understand God's grace and mercy in Christ, his forgiveness, his goodness, unmerited favor and blessing lavished on undeserving sinners. They knew that God's promise of a salvation by grace that would come extended far beyond Israel to include people from every nation on earth. 
it's crucial that we emphasize the phrase prophesied about the grace. That would come does not indicate that the prophets just look forward to a saving grace that did not exist in the Old Testament. By nature, God has always been an unchangeably gracious God. In the Old Testament, he was gracious to those who believed before Christ came. And since then, he is gracious to all who believe. Noah received grace from the Lord. Moses was fully aware of that grace in his writings. The prophet Jonah struggled with it when it was for the Ninevites. But he saw it. Salvation has always been available to sinners. And always and only by grace. So there was never any question during the Old Testament whether or not God was gracious. But the great manifestation of his grace would come with the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. Though the Old Testament prophets knew that their writings described a future manifestation of salvation grace, their desire to understand those prophecies, they wanted to understand more. And so they made careful searches and inquiries into their own writings. Verse 11 says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Holy Spirit not only inspired the Old Testament prophets, but also the New Testament apostles who took the fully revealed gospel as the theme of their preaching. Years earlier, Peter announced these truths in the first recorded apostolic sermon at Pentecost. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you will be, bap- each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. In addition to Peter, Those who preached the gospel included the remainder of the twelve, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Philip, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, Stephen, and others. Not all were apostles of Christ in the same sense as Paul and the twelve. They had not seen the risen Lord, but they were sent by the church as messengers of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Paul illustrates the singular devotion these preachers had to the greatness of the salvation message. He wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This Salvation is so great. It was the theme of the apostles' preaching. The prophets wanted to know everything about it. And we see here that even the angels, they want to understand it. They want to understand this kind of grace that they will never experience. The holy angels don't need to be saved. And the fallen angels can't be saved. 
but the holy ones seek to understand salvation so that they, they might glorify God more fully, which is their primary reason for existence. It is not that the angels have been uninvolved in God's plan of salvation. They announced Christ's birth. They ministered to him during the times of testing. They stood by him. They stood by the grave where he rose, and they attended his ascension into heaven. God has made his angels witnesses to what occurs in the body of Christ. What do they do when a sinner, when a sinner gets saved? They rejoice and praise God. God continues to put his saving grace on display before the angels. Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Angels want to know what this is about. Crossway, it truly has been a rough year. Life in a fallen world is hard. Life with other sinners is difficult. But we have a great Savior and a great salvation. Look to Christ, who you have not seen, but you love. Keep looking to him. Look to him and believe <clears throat> in him. Look to him and be filled with joy because he knows what you're going through. He is our living hope and he is our perfect example. You'll see it all throughout this book. Peter points to Christ because he did suffer. And he was persecuted like these people were. He's the perfect example. He suffered and was persecuted. He was mocked and beat. All because he loved you before the foundation of the world. Before you took your first breath, he already went to the cross for you. So as you face rejection by man, remember that you have been chosen by God. Do you ever think about that? While we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. We love him only because he first loved us. Peter says in this passage, you have not seen him in the past. You do not see him now. You do not yet see him, but one day your eyes will behold him and all of his glory. So whatever you're going through, everyone, seems like everyone's going through something right now. Whatever you're going through, it can be easy to get caught up in whatever season you're in, but look up. Keep looking up. Look to Christ and savor him. Look to the salvation that he bought for you with his blood. You may be rejected and treated poorly by man, but you are chosen and loved by God. Remember that. Remind yourself of that. Seasons come and go, but one day the seasons will end and eternity will come and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever with no more tears and no more sorrow Look to your Savior and look forward to your salvation. As the old classic hymn says, O soul, are you weary 
and trouble. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. And we thank you for our sweet Savior. Lord, life in this world is hard. Sin is everywhere. Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes on you and keep loving you and believing in you. Lord, continue to give us joy that surpasses understanding. Lord, I pray for everyone here who is suffering. We may not be suffering to the degree that these people are, but suffering still hurts. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort and you would rally everyone here around each other to encourage one another and to love one another and to reflect the love that you have for us. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning to worship you. Lord, you are worthy of all praise. Lord, I pray that this morning would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be dismissed.